0: here hosting Saturday Night Live. Some people uh, said this could be a big risk for me. Prosecuting the mob is risky. <laughs> After all, tonight, if I'm not good, you know, what are they going to do? Blow up my car? <laughs> but it truly has been a fantastic year. As you know, I was recently reelected to a second term as mayor of <laughs> New York. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Welcome
1: back, everyone.
0: I know a lot of people like yourself, uh, lefty writers, are in this moment wondering, like, what is the future of your kind of politics? What is the future of grassroots movement politics? Something that I've been keeping my eye on ever since the Sanders campaign failed, and where I took all my hopes for the world, you know, transferred them from the Sanders campaign directly to this, is the Snyder Cut. (laughs) <laughs> um have you been following the Snyder cut closely at all did you see Justice League
1: I can't remember. I've seen a bunch of those films, but I really can't keep them all together in my head. Which one is Justice League? What happens in that one?
0: Well, it's got a whole Justice League in it. It's not just Batman. It's not just Superman. It's not just the robot guy. Who else
1: is in it? Wonder Uh, Woman. Wonder Woman. Yeah. And Aquaman. Okay, yes, I I have seen this one. The Flash. Is this the one with the Flash?
0: That's right. The Flash is in it too. I may be missing somebody in there. You know, Shemp or Zeppo or one of the (laughs) lesser members of the Justice League. You may recall that this film, during its production, director Zack Snyder left uh, because he was going through some personal tragedy at the time. At least that was the front-facing story. And the film was finished by Joss Whedon.
1: Oh, you know what? Now this is really coming back because I I totally remember this film. This is the film that... Watches like two completely different films stitched together, where one of them has like the Zack Snyder 300 world weary, bleak, dark aesthetic, and then the other half is like zany Joss Whedon, like shot shot like a sitcom, and and you know the script is different. It's like all the characters are making these; they're all like breaking the fourth wall and sort of winking at the audience and doing like zany banter. It's like um um d- th-
0: that just happened, right? Uh, <laughs> so that's a thing. Anyway, fans for years ever since this came out have been rumbling that there may have been a cut of the film that more properly represented Zack Snyder's vision and they've launched a grassroots campaign which we first became aware of by watching the wet movie cool dooder videos (laughs) because wet movie and I think 90s kids forever were both early adopters of the Snyder cut
1: for those who are listening and are confused by these personalities they are basically some random youtube people that will and i watch for some reason and i would encourage you all not to investigate uh further
0: i uh, well i disagree with that but (laughs) you know we at the time i think thought that this was kind of funny like these people you know given everything that was happening in the world they're out there protesting to see a different cut of a bad movie
1: turns out though they had the more realistic political horizon Because this
0: campaign was so successful, it it spread so far, like anytime Warner Brothers would tweet anything, it would just be like... 500 people responding, release the Snyder Cut. They bought, like, a plane to fly over the Cannes Film Festival with, like, a release the Snyder Cut banner. <laughs> like, it, it's impressive. And then eventually, earlier this year, there, there came a tipping point when actual stars from the movie, like Gal Gadot, started tweeting, release the Snyder Cut. So, so, eventually, Warner Brothers relented, and they brought back Zack Snyder to, you know, prepare what was supposed to be, like, a $30 million uh, which is a lot of money, actually, but like a thirty million dollar <laughs> completion job. But there have been reshoots; a whole a whole bunch of new footage has been shot. It now costs upwards of seventy million dollars, and it's going to premiere, I think, sometime next year on the HBO Max streaming service. Anyway, two thoughts here: one, I am so much in favor of the Snyder Cut movement now. I love, <laughs> I love the combative spirit. I love that these fans are standing up for art and artists. (laughs) I love that they don't respect a corporation that would silence the voices of art and artists. You compare them to the hardcore Marvel fans who, who don't respect art and artists the marvel fans admire like the infrastructure of it (laughs) they admire the fact that like it's a big gigantic parking garage full of movies ruled over by these corporate masterminds and they love the fact that the quality control is consistent and every movie looks the same but the snyder cut people they want to see this madman's mad vision and you know sometimes you see uh, media elites blue check mark types saying that they don't respect the snyder cut people Saying that this is like toxic internet behavior, but it's not because there's nothing toxic about tweeting release the Snyder Cut at a corporate account. You know, these blue check marks, these are the people who, who don't like to get their hands dirty, ultimately.
1: You, you started this off as an ironic riff, and the further you've got in, gotten into it, the more it sounds like you're sincere.
0: This has been my relationship with the Snyder thing <laughs> as a whole. Because here here's the thing, like, I don't like Zack Snyder. I don't like his movies. Th- this movie he's making, the, the, the uncut Snyder Justice League, it's going to be over four hours long, apparently. Sounds awful. But it's the principle of the thing. Uh, The the man is an artist. He has a vision. (laughs) I don't have to like it or respect it. Uh, I would love to see grassroots movements like this pop up around things I like. But
1: well, if nothing else, it's great to learn that mass democracy isn't dead after all.
0: And the other thing I like about it is the fact that the budget on this thing is ballooned from $30 million to $70 million feels like a return to like the eccentric directorial excess of the 70s. I'm thinking of Francis Ford Coppola making (laughs) Apocalypse Now or Michael Cimino (laughs) making Heaven's Gate or Werner Herzog making Fitzcarraldo.
1: Yeah, but the difference, Will, is that those are all good movies.
0: I too am sad that we don't live in a better world. (laughs) (laughs) And that that this is is the eccentric directorial excess that we have. But hopefully, maybe this is something we can build on.
1: Well, uh, speaking of democracy, for a piece I just wrote that uh, should be out soon, I was revisiting something from 2009 that I think kind of way back on the show I brought up before. I think it's a very important relic from the past. Partly because I don't think enough people remember it, and more importantly, weren't really aware of what it was signifying at the time it was published. As Joe Biden predictably appoints a bunch of corporate operatives to his transition team, probably his cabinet as well. I had occasion to revisit this piece from March fifth, two thousand and nine, by David Brooks, longtime friend of the show. Uh, It's called "When Obamatons Respond." And yeah, I think I have brought this up before. But the crux of this is that uh, the previous week uh, in Brooks's previous column, he'd basically written a a take to the effect of, you know, activist, big spending, you know, tax and spend, liberal government is back. It's back in Washington. There's this new liberal administration. The Democrats have all three levels of government. This thing that we we thought we'd buried, this relic of uh, post-war era, is back. And the Obama people were apparently very upset by this. They did not like that David Brooks was writing this, and they're very keen to uh, set things straight. So. I'll just remind everyone of the date. This is March 5th, 2009. So, I mean, this is weeks into Barack Obama's presidency, okay? This isn't after uh, the 2010 midterms. This is right at the start. This is almost in the phase that we're in now. I mean, a little bit after the phase that we're in now, for Biden, but this is still the kind of dream big phase when a new democratic president is at his least constrained. And I think this is a really important moment uh, in any new administration because it's what will reveal uh, the kind of overall ethos of that administration, what it plans to do going forward. If ambitions are already being scaled down, if, if uh, certain kinds of signals are being sent, In this early phase, it's pretty much a guarantee that some big ambitious agenda is not coming. Or at very least, that bigness and ambition are going to mean something other than transformative New Deal style uh, reform. So back in 2009, David Brooks in this column was very heartened to be told by Obama's people uh, the following. He writes, in the first place, they do not see themselves as a group of liberal crusaders. They see themselves as pragmatists who inherited a government and an economy that have been thrown out of whack. They're not engaged in an ideological project to overturn the Reagan revolution, a fight that was over long ago. They're trying to restore balance, nurture an economy so that productivity gains, are shared by the middle class and correct the irresponsible habits that developed in the Bush era. The budget, they continue, isn't some grand transformation of America. It raises taxes on energy and offsets them with tax cuts for the middle class. It raises taxes on the rich to a level slightly above where they were in the Clinton years and then uses the money as a down payment on health care reform. That's what the budget does. It's not the Russian Revolution. So he goes on to talk about how they say they're committed to lowering federal spending They want to cap entitlement spending. They're particularly concerned with uh, what Brooks, and apparently they also saw as an excess in people claiming disability benefits. And this was something that they were going to crack down on within their uh, first 100 days. Third, uh, this is Brooks again. They say Republicans should welcome the budget's health care ideas. The Medicare reform represents a big cut in entitlement spending. It amounts to means testing the system. It introduces more competition and cuts corporate welfare. These are all Republican ideas. You know, and there's a bunch more stuff in here, but I think the other crucial paragraph is he, this is Obama, is extremely, that's uh, italicized for emphasis, extremely committed to entitlement reform and is plotting politically feasible ways to reduce social security as well as health spending. The White House folks didn't say this, but I got the impression they'd be willing to raise taxes on the bottom 95% of earners as part of the overall package. And it pretty much just goes on like this. You know, I was around, obviously, when this was going on. And if memory serves, you know, March of 2009 was still the kind of euphoric phase of the Obama presidency. I think a lot of people didn't really pick up on stuff like this. I mean, this was... Obama and his people telling one of the nation's kind of marquee conservative columnists that don't worry, we fully accept all of the ideas from the other side. And actually in some ways, we're better at implementing them than they are. I think I talked about this a few episodes ago, but one of the things I'm struggling with now is somebody who's kind of been on the Biden beat for the past year is just how little people want to hear about all of Biden's awful appointments and policy announcements and things like that. Nobody wants to hear when, you know, a big bad Republican president has been ousted that the new administration is not going to represent, you know, the negation of all evil. That's not what people want to hear. But boy, when you look at the people that Biden is seeking to include in his administration, I mean, I don't know if they were just sending this out as kind of a tester. But there was that story last week about how Rahm Emanuel is being considered for transportation secretary,
0: which is something that even many of Biden's kind of uh, progressive allies in the media, ostensibly progressive allies in the media were pushing back on.
1: Yeah, so that might be them just testing the waters to see what they can get away with. But yeah, basically, you know, the message that's being sent is they don't think they need any, they don't even think they need kind of token gestures to the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. They don't think they really owe anything beyond the vague and symbolic to, you know, left leaning younger voters uh, without whom they would absolutely not have won. The overall kind of tenor of things right now, you know, in some ways is very similar to where things were at in 2009 where the Democrats win and right away they're scaling back ambitions that were already too modest and weren't even very committal about to begin with, I mean, when was the last time you remember, uh, do people remember the public option? Remember the the famous public option that was Biden's? uh, This was his supposedly pragmatic alternative to Medicare for all. Well, Obama ran on that as well and uh, subsequently dropped it despite having thumping majorities in both houses and this sweeping mandate. Anyway, hard not to feel shades of uh, of 2008 and early 2009 right now. I guess the big difference is that people were actually excited about Barack Obama and I'm not sure that uh, that's the case Biden. So it'll be interesting to see where things will go.
0: You mentioned, though, that people aren't eager to hear this, which I think has generally been the sense I'm getting. So it's a very strange like atmosphere in the air. There's no euphoria. And in fact, there's there's still quite a lot of like criticism. And there's much more infighting than there normally is on the winning side of a presidential election. But there seems to be this yearning for a sense of euphoria. I'm not sure how else to describe the mood right now.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a pretty accurate characterization of what we're seeing. I mean, I guess Biden, you know, sort of exists as a carte blanche for people. I mean, Obama, for different reasons, for much more deliberate reasons, Obama was somebody you could really project any kind of image on depending on what you wanted or needed to see. And and that was by design, you know, Obama, his rhetoric was deliberately this kind of mashup of Reagan and Kennedy and FDR and Clinton. It was just kind of all things to all people. Biden has an all things to all people quality as well. Although, I think he's a different kind of cypher. I mean, I think he's a much more passive kind of cypher. If, if people are able to project what they want to see onto him, a big part of it has to do with his rhetoric around kind of bipartisanship and cooperation, and just the fact that his only political idea is some sort of vague notion of national unity or something like that. But I think it's also because he hasn't been, he hasn't been particularly visible, right? I mean, Partly because he's been kept, I think, quite deliberately out of uh, you know his his visibility has been minimized. But secondly, because this wasn't a normal election and there weren't kind of big rallies and things like that, so perhaps this is too optimistic. But what I suspect is that when you know Biden comes into office and the really the only thing that he's offered is not being Donald Trump, um, that's not going to be enough this time. And I think uh, he, he will struggle with certain parts of the Democratic coalition. I'm not sure uh, having him and Kamala Harris be epic on late night TV or whatever is going to cut it this time.
0: Another difference is that even when Obama was talking about bipartisanship and unity, the fact that he was a relatively youthful president and that, that he was the first black president, inherent in that was the promise of like moving forward of some kind of brave new world, whereas Biden's whole persona was explicitly modeled around, you know, making America. A great
1: again, right? Right, getting things back to normal.
0: Speaking of projecting whatever you want onto somebody, I'd like to take you now back to 2003, a time when one of the most beloved politicians in the world was former New York City Mayor Rudolph Giuliani. On this episode, we will discuss the 2003 made-for-TV movie "Rudy: The Rudy Giuliani Story," starring the great James Woods. <laughs> the story broke in the papers this morning. Your father had a criminal record? My father? Are you crazy? A reporter at the Village Voice dug it up. Look, when you were growing up, I mean, no one mentioned anything. Never, don't They'd ask ever... stupid questions. <laughs> Village Voice, what did, he, what, what did this panty sniffer say about my dad? What did he say he did? What? <laughs> he collected money? He got in a fistfight with somebody? Afraid not. Armed robbery. Never. Impossible. They found an arrest. I accident. don't give a shit what they found. It is not true about my father. It was 1934 before you were born. He held up a milkman. He was incarcerated at Sing Sing. He served a year in change.
1: They're publishing the documentation. Did you like this movie, Will?
0: I mean, no, I, I didn't <laughs> like I Believe it or not, I did not like this movie. But here's what I'm going to say for it. I found it uh, an easier sit than some of the things we've watched because I do like James Woods, um, mm-hmm. not as a person, but... Uh, I'll watch him in just about anything. I think he's an incredibly charismatic actor, and I don't know to what extent his performance actually reflects the <laughs> the personality of the real <laughs> Rudolph Giuliani. I I would imagine
1: minimally, but he doesn't look or sound anything like Giuliani. But but here's the thing: he
0: delivers a real James Woods performance. He does <laughs> he does all the James Woods shtick. So uh, I had a pretty good time watching him. <laughs> That, that's probably the biggest compliment I can give the film. What what did you think of it?
1: Well, yeah, I guess I had kind of a similar experience. I mean, the, yeah, I think it goes without saying this film sucks. I think it's about 30%, 30% on Rotten Tomatoes, something like that.
0: Interestingly, though, James Woods was nominated for a primetime Emmy for his performance.
1: Uh-huh. And in fact, won a uh, a Saturn Award. Not bad. Uh-huh.
0: Don't you think he should make a sequel right now? Like about the subsequent almost almost <laughs> 20 years? of rudy's life
1: <laughs> well it was time to get back to basics this week i feel like we've done a lot of kind of art films and like our last patreon episode was about leonard cohen and it was time for the show to get back to its roots and uh this movie uh i think is certainly in keeping with those roots i mean it, it would be completely illegible to anybody who found out about giuliani kind of in the last few years like if your if your introduction to rudolph giuliani is during the trump era uh, you might be surprised to hear that he was such a you know, fashionable political commodity. I mean, he was he was on the cover of Time Magazine. He was America's mayor. Despite constant infidelity scandals and things like that, he was considered a front-runner, if not the front-runner for quite a while for the 2008 Republican presidential nomination. To come to this circumstance that is so desperately sad, I, and I don't trust my judgment in, in matters uh, like this, Uh, But I'll tell you the reason that uh, I am doing a show and the reason I am back to work is because of uh, Mayor Giuliani. Only in that context, you know, in this kind of post 9-11 context, could a figure like this have the national prominence that he did and uh, inspire a ridiculous made for TV movie like this, which is so incredible because uh, you know this is attempting to be a hagiographic movie that celebrates Rudy Giuliani. Like this is the most idealized portrait of Giuliani you're gonna get. This is a, a the filmmakers <laughs> are clearly sympathetic to him. The tagline for this movie is he divided a city, He united a nation. And what's so incredible about this is the movie cannot help just by virtue of rendering, you know, with some degree of factual accuracy, the details of Rudy Giuliani's life and career. It cannot help depicting him as a racist, a serial adulterer, as an apologist for police brutality, as somebody who lies pretty regularly to the people in his life. And even its chosen spin on all this is pretty hard to swallow, even as the film forces you to kind of identify with the Giuliani character played by James Woods, because it's only rejoinder to all this is, you know, but he was a man of action who, uh, when crisis hit, he was on the scene. Uh, he, he was on TV to say, uh, we're, we're going to be united and we're going to get through this. And he had brilliant ideas that no one else had thought of, like close the other buildings that are big.
0: And uh, come down hard on the criminals. That's right.
1: That's right. Uh, And actually, I think that is another piece of context that's crucial to this movie, because one of the kind of early war on terror narratives, right, which was key to Bush's appeal and is kind of how Bush was sold to people at the time, was like, you know, this is no time for half measures. You know, you got to you got to crack some eggs to make an omelet. We need to have a ton of repressive uh, measures if we're going to win this thing. There's no time for like you know, uh, bleeding heart libs and their concerns about civil liberties and racial justice and things like that. So that's kind of the other spin on Giuliani is that like, well, uh, you may not like him, but he gets the job done. At a number of points in the movie, Giuliani is seen, you know, complaining that his, you know, he's not more popular and then rattling off statistics about how much he's reduced crime. And he's like, but the libs don't like it because the cops put 40 bullets into an innocent black man. And, uh, and for some reason, people, don't like that.
0: So let's run through his life a little bit. And also let's run through the structure of the film. It opens. Yeah, with... it's very
1: artful and nonlinear storytelling. <laughs> yeah. It, it has to
0: keep cutting back to nine 11 to remind you. Huh? Huh? Remember? It's like, no, no, he's a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> But but it opens even after that with him, I guess, in the waning days of his mayoralty or, or Michael Bloomberg may have finally just succeeded him as mayor and he's being driven in a cab back to his apartment. And he's looking around at his city and he's like, you know what? keep driving me around this is my city you know i'm i'm christopher walken and king of new york uh,
1: <laughs> he says uh, he says uh, uh, you know the better you do they, the more they want to eat you lonely um, is the path of the ronin
0: and then it cuts to 911 where we infer that giuliani is in a low ebb of his popularity he's on his way to a meeting to potentially endorse a future mayoral candidate Uh, And people are yelling at him on the street, but then he gets tapped on the shoulder. 9-11 happens and he takes action. He is there. He is at ground zero. He is leading the charge. And you may wonder how it was that he found himself in this situation. Well, the movie takes us back to the Gerald Ford era, early in Giuliani's career, when he had a position in the Attorney General's office, and he was making his name as the greatest fear of Haitian refugees everywhere. This is a point that I think the movie rather glosses over. We see him being interviewed on TV by his future wife, one of his future wives, as she challenges one him. One of his
1: future ex-wives. As she
0: challenges him, uh, you know, these, these Haitian refugees say they're they're fleeing persecution and, and and people are saying that you're very heartless. And he says, uh, well, my dear, that sounds like a matter for the courts, but we're enforcing the law and say, can I, can I take you out for dinner sometime and a walk on the
1: beach? This is Giuliani's uh, second wife. He had an earlier marriage, which ended in the mid 1970s.
0: You know, he just loved his job too much. There are things he loves in this world, the Yankees, <laughs> uh, his job and doing justice. And sometimes women don't understand that.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the, again, that's sort of the film's very unconvincing spin on the marriage that he uh, epically fucks up. Spends the whole
0: movie epically fucking up really.
1: But for a brief period of their courtship, this is uh, when Giuliani met Donna Hanover who was a, uh, a local TV personality in Miami and she she interviewed him. So the Haitian refugee thing that Will mentioned is just kind of, uh, it's really just a device to introduce the Donna Hanover character and in the kind of brief period of the movie when they're courting and things are still fresh, there's a number of very funny scenes. There's a scene where they're having a romantic walk on the beach, which is there's so it's so clearly green screened. It's hilarious. What passes for romantic conversation is her asking him about his political history and him saying something about how he used to be a democrat and she says, "Why did you switch?" and he says, Democrats always talked about making things better. Republicans are the ones who work to make things better. And then that's the last thing he says before they share a first kiss, which is pretty amazing. There's another scene where they're in his apartment or something, or maybe it's her apartment. And uh, the film has to keep impressing upon you. It has to keep reminding you that Rudy Giuliani is Italian, in case you've forgotten. (laughs) You know, so they have him listening to like various Italian operas constantly.
0: Oh, that was his other passion, opera.
1: Yeah, uh, he's a man of quite refreshing fine tastes uh he also uh he professes to be a fan of wagner uh in this film make of that what you will yeah you know we see him eating pizza and talking about yeah Formaggio parmio or whatever so yeah in case you've forgotten uh, rudy giuliani Uh, italian guy
0: from there he goes to new york and becomes the most feared figure among uh, the new york city mafia as district attorney he meets them on their level he he jogs around the meatpacking district and tells them hey uh, tell fat tony i'm coming for him so frustrated however is he by crime that he decides to take on david dinkins in the mayoral race We see him record a commercial saying, if you pulled every mobster, every two-bit hoodlum in this city, who are they more afraid of, me or Dinkins? I think that's one election I'd win. (laughs) Now, uh... (laughs) Now, this is one of my favorite. The the Dinkins v. Giuliani stretch of this film is one of my favorites, because it has this amazing scene where Dinkins beats him the first time and Giuliani is leading like an anti-Dinkins rally, which gets a little bit racist, you know, while Giuliani has his head turned.
1: Yeah, basically, the police are protesting some kind of like civilian oversight board or something, and uh, Giuliani comes and gives them like a Blue Lives Matter speech, you know, this this braying mob of NYPD officers,
0: and he is shocked, shocked to find that there's racism in this establishment.
1: <laughs> but you're alighting, um another incredible scene in the in the Dinkin stretch of the movie, which is after he records the ad. You t- you talked about, you know, he has a fight with his wife, who's basically saying, you know, stop sounding like candidate Giuliani. Like we want to hear more of the man. Uh, honestly, the ad sounded exactly. I'm mean, not sure there's really much of a distinction. The ad pretty much sounded like sounded like Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani. Giuliani demand to me uh, with its, you know, all its racial dog whistles and the rest of it. But what's so amazing about this, and you know, this gets it why the film is so funny, is that it then has Giuliani, like he loses his temper because his wife storms out, you know, she doesn't understand, you know, he's a man of action, he has a job to do, so he can't make dinner. And then there's like a squeegee kid that's like doing his car or something. And he just starts yelling at him and like one of his aides has given the guy a dollar and then he's like demanding the the kid give the dollar back or whatever. And he's like, get away from me, you you thug or whatever. You know, this is legalized robbery, is what this is. You know, we got to crack down on this. And it's like, it's just a guy washing your window. You don't have to give him money.
0: Well, of course, that's your point of view as a bleeding heart liberal. But later on, (laughs) Giuliani explains the broken window theory of crime, which is, to stop the crime wave, you have to stop the first window from being broken.
1: You have to stop to, to stop the crime wave, you have to stop the first windshield from being cleaned.
0: He says in the film, you stop the squeegee kid from harassing a family in the car, you clean up the graffiti, turnstile jumpers, whatever. These quality of life infractions are the viruses that invade society. You stop them, you stop the disease. So that's the Rudolph Giuliani theory of crime. By the way, to the Dinkins stretch of the film, I also want to take note of a very special scene that takes place during his second and ultimately successful mayoral run, where one of his advisors says, listen, Dinkins is black, you're white, we can make something of this. And Giuliani does not have a racist bone in his body. He is not (laughs) listening to this. He says, no, when they go low, we go high. Let Dinkins play the race card. I can run on my record.
1: You know, it's funny. You say the Dinkins stretch is kind of your favorite part of the film, I think it's perhaps because that's the only part of the film where anything happens. I mean, the rest of it, the whole film almost feels like one giant act three, because the rest of it is his marriage disintegrating as he has uh, not one, but two or perhaps even three affairs with various women.
0: Conducted in the mayor's office, mostly, it seems.
1: Uh Uh-huh. And now I was wondering if they were going to show what happened in real life, which is that he announced he was separating from his wife, Donna Hanover, uh, at a press conference before he'd even told her about it. And uh, yes, that is in fact, in the movie. Uh, and the film is just as as Giuliani, as James Woods as Giuliani is doing this, the film is just constantly cutting back to nine eleven footage uh, <laughs> to to be like, but but remember, but 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 he did he did he did he did this thing. Oh,
0: but but folks, there's more because Giuliani also decides to make a bit of a media star out of police chief Bratton who is pioneering the broken window theory of crime. Uh, It it turns out that as crime begins to decrease, Chief Bratton starts to get just a little bit too much publicity. So Giuliani decides to make an example of him, (laughs) decides to make him sleep with the fishes, uh, just just fires him. And wouldn't you know it, this actually backfires because... (laughs) both the press and the public uh, quickly realized that he's only fired Bratton because he was getting publicity that ought to have rightfully gone to Giuliani
1: again (laughs) even in even in the most idealized portrayal of Rudy Giuliani he's essentially just like a media harlot even what the film tries to present as his iron-hearted conviction to fight crime and disorder like even that in what's supposed to be you know a hagiographic telling of Giuliani's life even that is just part of his media harlotry
0: and we're even done, because we haven't even got to the Diallo incident from 1999, when a Guinean immigrant was shot 41 times by the police, which further hammered away at Giuliani's approval ratings. There is also a brief and relatively minor scandal when it is revealed that his father was arrested for armed robbery in 1934 and served a year in Sing Sing which is not Giuliani's fault, of course. But by the time that we got to this part of like the last stretch of the movie, I was wondering when we were ever going to get some good news for Giuliani. We see a little bit of his ultimately aborted Senate race against Hillary Clinton, which was shaping up to be a close contest until the one-two punch of Giuliani's extramarital affairs and his cancer diagnosis led to him dropping out. And then, finally, we get to 9-11.
1: Yeah, and what's so incredible about that is... Uh, 9-11 the film appears to be building to some kind of grand finale where instead of Giuliani on 9-11 just being sort of briefly invoked before you return to the story like there's really not much else it's just kind of the same footage of him sort of running around and going on TV and then there's a kind of brief speech Uh, that he gives in honor of a firefighter who died.
0: A more skillful film, I think, could have figured out a way to have 9-11 be the moment when like, all of his good and bad qualities finally converge. It's like, he's tough on crime. He has no time for liberal pieties. uh, He's a man of action. He's a media harlot. It's all here. (laughs) And love him or hate him, but it all came down to this. And yet the movie doesn't quite make that case. It feels like like 9-11 is this, like, thing desperately grafted on to a a failed and largely despicable political career
1: yeah and that's the film doesn't even include as you said the subsequent 19 years of giuliani being an (laughs) arguably an even bigger piece of shit if the film had even continued for a few more years you might have seen some of the other controversies that daunted giuliani After he left the mayor's office, for example, at one point he claimed to have been on the Ground Zero site, quote, as often, if not more than most workers. I was there working with them (laughs) as I was exposed to exactly the same things they were exposed to. So in a sense, I'm one of them. Now, unsurprisingly, a lot of 9-11 workers had a problem with this. It turned out that Giuliani's appointment logs were unavailable for the six days immediately following the attacks. But over three months, beginning on September 17th, 2001, he logged 29 hours at the site of the attacks. So, I mean, obviously, recovery workers who spent, you know, days at the site would have logged the same amount in just a, you know, a few days. So that's a a little bit of stolen valor on uh, Rudy Giuliani's part.
0: Because they don't decide the election. The call for Joe Biden isn't, is it, is it what was it called by? All the, all the, oh my goodness, all the networks. Wow, all the networks. We have to forget about the law. Judges don't count. All the networks, all the networks, all the networks thought Biden was gonna win by 10%. Gee, what happened? Come on, don't be don't be ridiculous. Networks don't get to decide elections.
1: Courts do. Now, of course, uh, it's been a banner month for Giuliani in the real world, a month, which began, I mean, I think it was only about four weeks ago that the Borat movie came out, maybe even less. Um, and you know, there was a scene, <laughs> it's like we... a lifetime ago. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, it was before the election, right? I mean, that scene, you know, it was reported, I guess a couple days before the film was released and we talked about it on our, uh, on our Borat Patreon episode. People will be familiar with that. So, uh, you know, we don't need to go through it. I do not, for the record, think that he was merely tucking in his shirt, um, but that's by the by. But of course, uh, Giuliani was in the news last week because he started leaking at this ludicrous press conference hair dye or, or god knows what streaming down his temples as he presented you know the latest incarnation of the crackpot trump case to try to overturn the results of the election there's not much to say about this apart from the press conference is very funny if people haven't seen the pictures they should check them out the argument they're using is very funny and i mean it's worth impressing the point that this is very much not 2001 i mean the case uh, in bush v gore was very simple they just had to argue that the count had to be stopped one of the things that Giuliani has been trying to argue is that the Trump campaign itself should be allowed to go into places like Pennsylvania and manually manually count the ballots and then extrapolate, I guess using past polling data or something, I'm not sure on what basis, statistically extrapolate that Biden in fact did not, uh, you know, could not possibly have won the votes that he did. And the strategy is to do this apparently in multiple states, so it's a very fragmented strategy. It's clearly not going to work. Since the election, I have to say I've been a little bit irritated and frustrated by all the sort of coup talk. I kind of hope that the election would put an end to sort of the worst excesses of like, I don't know, resistance Twitter or whatever. But uh, Trump's very chaotic and uh, certain to be thwarted attempts to steal the election have not, uh, in fact, put a stop to any of that stuff. And, you know, as serious as this is, I mean, I'm not trying to downplay the fact, you know, it's significant and people are right to find it objectionable that, that Trump and his people are doing what they're doing. But I also think it's fundamentally unserious. And you can tell it's unserious. I mean, I don't see how people can go from laughing about Trump's failure to book. Was it the Four Seasons? He booked a garden center or something like that instead to then like two days later, like we're in the middle of a coup. I mean, this is not what a coup looks like in real life. For that, you can look to some of the stuff the US government has helped foment in Latin America. So I kind of think the whole thing is just a giant grift. And it's a grift for the, you know, Republicans who are involved in it, right? Like just trying to suck up, like just lap up just some of the last, the final drops of, you know, Trump era grift that they can get. But I guess the more controversial part of what I'm saying is that I think during the trump era there has also been a kind of cottage industry around liberal alarmism a genuine challenge of the trump era has been parsing which things to take very seriously and which things to take less seriously because there is this entire kind of i mean a lot of democratic fundraising has drawn very heavily on instilling fear in people so that they'll open their wallets invoking obvious hyperbole. I mean, this talk about a coup going on is a good example. It's gotten some coverage, but, you know, there was this ridiculous consulting firm that was involved in the Jamie Harrison Senate campaign. The Jamie Harrison campaign, I think, is a good example Uh, of this kind of strategy and and the extent to which it is a strategy, you know, in the eternal symbiosis of Republicans being dangerous, but also incredibly theatrical and Democrats and liberals kind of creating alarmism around that and then fundraising and getting people to open their wallets. You know, the Jamie Harrison campaign, people have published some of the subject lines in its fundraising emails, and they're all things like, not the news I wanted to share. Are you up? Unfortunately. Mitch McConnell is crushing our campaign, crushing all caps. They are even torquing some of the email addresses uh, so that when you get an email that says Mitch McConnell is crushing our campaign, it's from a, a, an address that says Over at jamieharrison.com. So is Trump trying to delegitimize the election bad? Yes, obviously. Is there a coup underway? Uh, No, I don't think so. Uh, Maybe don't put so much stock in the subject lines from, you know, I don't know, the Pod Save Boys or whoever else is spamming your inbox with that kind of stuff. Before we say goodbye to uh, to Rudy Giuliani, there's one last thing I wanted to say. I mean, I think many people will wonder how it was that this slimy right wing politician became a national darling in the early 2000s. Because
0: he got the smut peddlers off 42nd Street. <laughs>
1: Well, it's because he went on TV during a crisis and said a bunch of stuff that, because of the moment, you know, what was going on, because of the context, people found comforting.
0: On SNL, they sang a song about how they were sad he couldn't run for mayor again.
1: (laughs) Well, and you know, Giuliani actually got his term extended. If memory serves, he got his term extended by a few months, and he threatened to try to overturn the ban in the New York State Constitution, preventing him from running for a third term if the people running to succeed him didn't agree to a three-month extension.
0: Fortunately, cooler heads prevailed, and no future mayors (laughs) received a third term.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, actually, good point. But I don't know, you know, a lot of liberals during the Trump era have wondered how is it that Donald Trump commands this, you know, I mean, it's a minority, but you know, it is a less than negligible chunk of the electorate of Republican voters who will basically just believe anything he says, uh, who love watching his insane performances on TV. You know, and liberals think to themselves, you know, how is this even possible? For the answer, I would say to look no further than Andrew Cuomo, than the current governor of New York State, uh, who has literally released a book, or it is being released, about his handling of the pandemic, like, you know, kind of how we conquered the pandemic. This is while the pandemic is raging New York City and New York State. Andrew Cuomo is presiding over what has been one of the epicenters of the pandemic in the United States, Uh, And actually, at time of recording, he was tweeting out the award ceremony, a link to you can stream the award ceremony and watch him get an Emmy for looking good on TV uh, during the crisis. This is from an NPR report. The International Academy of Television Arts and Sciences announced Friday that it is breaking with tradition and awarding its International Emmy Founders Award to a real politician who is currently in office. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is being honored for his daily coronavirus briefings earlier this year. Quote, the governor's 111 daily briefings worked so well because he effectively created television shows with characters, plot lines, and stories of successes and failure. The The Academy's president and CEO, Bruce Peisner, explained in a statement announcing decision, people around the world tuned in to find out what was going on and New York tough became a symbol of the determination to fight back. So here you have it, folks. Uh,
0: that That is so bleak. Oh my God. That's like a Paul Verhoeven movie, isn't it?
1: It is being made official in press release form that a politician's reputation uh, has nothing to do and should have nothing to do with their actual performance They are not democratic representatives who owe constituents uh, democratic representation. They are performers and their job is to look good on TV. And what matters is how the performance makes us feel. Uh, I mean, this line about he effectively created television shows with characters, plot lines, and stories of successes and failures Politics is just marketing, everyone. It's official.
0: What were the failures, by the way? (laughs) Any details on that?
1: (laughs) But just to go back to Trump, I'm always struck by how kind of bothered and disturbed liberals are by how popular he is given, you know, his kind of theatrical behavior and his ridiculous speeches and all the rest of it. You know, given that it seems like for many of them, their own theory of politics is that they are basically a performance. And it's really the only difference is they just have different aesthetic preferences than the MAGA people. But it's still fundamentally an aesthetic conception of politics. Anyways, congratulations to uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo breaking the glass ceiling for New York's Italian-American politician community. A glass ceiling that should have been shattered had the elites at the Emmy Awards uh, not decided to snub Rudy Giuliani in 2001.
0: Oh, thank you very much. I'm uh, particularly honored to play this because I really put my heart and soul into Rudy Giuliani. He's a man I admire greatly uh, at one of the most shocking and difficult times in this country's history. His grace, his dignity, his belief in his values and our values as a nation uh, allowed him to pull us together. And he was truly, for that time, America's mayor. Here's what you do domestically. You take Don Imus's advice. And you tell this Tommy Thompson and Tom Ridge, good try, nice going, we'll see you later. And in charge of the whole domestic thing, you put Rudolph Giuliani, an Italian from
1: Brooklyn, okay?
0: I was sad to see, as a Toronto resident, two beloved local establishments are biting the dust because of the ongoing pandemic. Uh, first of all, just just on a sentimental note, a, a backroom bar in Kensington Market called Cold Tea, which is beloved by many residents, is closing. It was probably one of like the oldest and most popular bars in Kensington. You know, this will be meaningless to anyone who doesn't live in the city. But when I see something like that close, like it feels like a gut punch because it just feels like my entire 20s are getting steamrolled right now. <laughs> Did you ever have that feeling?
1: Yeah, I mean, some of my favorite spots have, uh, have closed too. And not just, uh, you know, restaurants and, you know, coffee houses and kind of favorite haunts, but also just independently owned stores that I liked bookstores, record stores. Um, actually, though, also there was a family-owned supplement store and kind of health food store that used to sell me really good, really high-quality protein powder. You know, it was parents and their son that ran it. And I tried to use it as much as I can and skip, you know, GNC and, and Popeyes and kind of like the big supplement chains. Just another example of, of how the pandemic is stamping out anything that offered even in a banal way any kind of local flavor or anything distinct from kind of the homogeneity of big box stores. I remember early in the pandemic, a colleague at Jacobin, I forget who said something about how the pandemic was gonna just kind of accelerate a lot of austerity and closures and corporate monopolism that was sort of happening already. And boy, you can really see that with what's going on right now, especially as uh, Toronto and other cities of equivalent size go back into lockdown and even more small and independent businesses are on the chopping block. Now of course there was another beloved chain. I see where you're going with this riff and there's another beloved chain that I believe has also recently come to an unfortunate end. And I, I think some of our listeners have actually been bothering us on Twitter and in DMs to uh to talk about this. So this is a very uh prickly subject for Will and I can see him tearing up behind the camera a bit.
0: Well, th- not not a chain, but in fact a wonderful independent business. <laughs> a real a real bootstraps operation that we had here in Toronto, the Garfield Eats Pizza Restaurant in Bloordale, which I know has come up on the show before. When it opened, I think two years ago or so. Okay, a little context. It is a Garfield-themed pizza restaurant. Uh, The Tubby Tabby is all over the store. You can get pizzas shaped like Garfield's head, which, I mean, I never actually ordered anything from there. (laughs) I I don't understand how that would work or why that would even be desirable. (laughs) But when it opened, I was, of course, appalled by it. I thought, this is the life cycle of every interesting neighborhood, isn't it? (laughs) Good places get chased out and they get steamrolled by the fucking Garfield restaurant. Uh, I was amused to eventually learn that the guy who ran the Garfield restaurant was actually like this weird local eccentric. (laughs) (laughs) It it wasn't like he, he officially licensed the character, but this wasn't pause inc you know <laughs> smothering the continent with garfield restaurants. this wasn't it was
1: this, it, 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 this wasn't i hate monday's llc this was
0: this was like klaus kinski pulling a boat over a mountain except the <laughs> boat was was garfield
1: r.i.p to the snyder cut of garfield restaurants
0: anyway after a, i think one or two closing scares uh, they were in some dispute with their landlord the Garfield restaurant is officially closing now, and I am a little sad because it it does feel at this point like a weird local landmark, one of the increasingly rare places where I pass it, and I think, huh, and uh, now it's gone. First, we lost the porn theater in Koreatown. Now we've lost Garfield Eats. I mean, I shudder to think what happens when Reg Heart's Cineforum finally
1: bites the dust. A trifecta of places you, visit, you visited regularly, I'm sure. <laughs>